Hi, you're listening to Optimizing with me, Professor Barry Gulaski. And me, Karen Gammy. Today we'll be continuing our conversation on how you became the Grand Geek, but also how that uniquely positions you to guide the conversation on leading Africa's digital future. In the first episode of the podcast, we set some of the context. We talked about what it was that has motivated me to launch this podcast. We spoke about some of the greatest challenges and hugest opportunities currently facing Africa and South Africa. We've got a population that will almost double in size over the next generation. We've got growing cities that will need to deal with the broadening divide between the haves and the have-nots. We're facing growing global and local environmental challenges. But I believe that the approaching digital uh, revolution, or the fourth industrial revolution, brings with it huge opportunities to find initiatives and to drive innovation that will solve some of these challenges. That's what this podcast is about. We'll use this podcast together to host conversations involving people who leaders in the digital community in Africa and those like you who will shape the future. So in the first three episodes of the podcast, we're going to be taking a look at your background, your hopes and dreams, the things that make you exceptional and cool. And then maybe also understand sort of what you've done over the last 40 years to kind of get the experience and the expertise that has now enabled you to lead this conversation on Africa's digital future. In the first episode, we talked about some of the engineering work I did in the 1980s while I lived in voluntary exile in the UK. The other hugely important part of my life while I lived in the UK was about what led me to leave South Africa in 1979 and what brought me back to South Africa 10 years later. Yeah, okay, this is going to be exceptionally spicy and I'm so excited to hear this. Um, but yeah, tell me a little bit about that period and kind of what was happening in South Africa like during that time and how it shaped you. So I came back to South Africa in July 1989. I came back as an underground operative in the then-banned African National Congress, ANC. I came back to South Africa to work on a top-secret project at the time. And this was the time that the apartheid government, to most of us, seemed to be extremely powerful and appeared to be gearing up for an all-out war to defend white minority rule in the face of growing resistance coming both from locally, from within South Africa, and from around the world. I've only ever really shared this story of this part of my life with a few very close friends, but I've decided to bring it into this podcast because it's an essential element in explaining who I am and why I feel so passionately about the future of South Africa and Africa. All right, so I guess we're all familiar with apartheid. We all know people who were affected by it in some way, shape or form. Um, but I want to understand what apartheid was like for you and sort of how it affected the work that you were doing throughout that period. Um, so let me try to paint a picture using an example that became very important in some of the work that I did in the 1990s. 
let's talk about electricity. Very topical. It's one of those things that many of us take for granted. In the developed world, we all have access to electricity in our homes. It's used in lighting, cooking, powering the vast range of appliances and devices we depend on. And it's really only when our electricity supply is disrupted that we appreciate how difficult it is to live without electricity. So this load shedding we've been experiencing over the past few years in South Africa has certainly made us all understand the importance of electricity in our lives. So there's this measure called the rate of electrification and it's an important way to measure the state of development of a country. Um, it's uh, defined as the percentage of homes that have access to electricity. In the highly developed countries of Europe and North America, they have 100% rate of electrification, or very close to that. In the least developed countries or regions in the world, they've got rates as low as 10%. So that means only 10% of homes in some countries or some regions have access to electricity. Um, in South Africa in the 1980s, our rate of electrification was around 30%, which placed us amongst the least developed countries in the world. However, this overall percentage was an average, and it really hides a very important fact. If you divided the population amongst two, into two groups, those with white skins and those with dark skins, the picture changed very dramatically. The rate of electrification for the one in five um, South Africans with white skins was close to 100%, while only about 10% of black South Africans had access to electricity. In other words, all white South Africans had electricity at home, even those living in tiny towns or in remote farmhouses. The National Power Utility Eskom, which is in the news a lot these days, and municipalities spared no expense to connect white households to the national grid. In spite of this, the price that white South Africans paid for electricity was the lowest in the world. The reliability and the quality of supply was of a standard expected in Europe or North America. So white South Africa was very first world. This is pretty crazy. And I guess also like the danger that lies in trusting averages because it never really like speaks to the holistic picture. Um, yeah, that is that is super wild. Um, and I, you've obviously alluded to it, but like this makes the situation for like black South Africans at the time and even now, but more so at the time, entirely different. Yeah, because in black communities, even in old established black townships in major cities, they weren't electrified. So Soweto had no electricity in people's homes. There's a common image from that period of apartheid where you had black families using candles for light and wood, and wood coal and paraffin for heating and cooking as Eskom's huge power lines 
went straight over their homes carrying electricity from white area to white area. And um, for white South Africans, there was access to clean, cheap and, avail and power available at the flick of a switch. For black South Africans, access to energy was a daily challenge. Um, the sources of energy that people used were polluting, expensive and difficult to access. People would walk large distances to collect wood for heating and cooking. Uh, people had to spend very precious resources on buying candles for lighting. So, and the real irony of this was that in the 1970s, Eskom had built several huge new power stations. And it turned out that in the 1980s, they weren't needed. So the uh, resultant oversupply of generation capacity meant that these huge uh, power stations were mothballed. In other words, they weren't being used while millions of black women and children spent hours each day collecting wood and dung for cooking and heating. So that's what apartheid was about. Apartheid was about this stark inequality and this weird logic that existed across all provision of things like electricity, water, housing, healthcare, education, food and all the other essentials of life. One thing that I find really interesting about like just my age mates is how willfully ignorant they can be around like socioeconomic or socio-political issues. Um, and one thing that really strikes me is that you've been incredibly socially and politically active, but you didn't necessarily grow up with Google or things that made access to information incredibly easy. So I'm wondering kind of what were some of the early influences in your life that got you thinking a little bit more critically about the world in which you were growing up in? So... I guess it started as a student at WITS in the 1970s. Um, in my first year, I joined an organization called SAVS, which stood for South African Voluntary Service. And um, people might not know this, but since WITS had been forced by the apartheid government to exclude black students in 1959, it was called the Extension of Universities Act, and it kicked out all the black students at WITS. Most of my, almost all my fellow students in the uh, 1970s were white. There were a tiny number of black South Africans who were granted permission by the government to study at WITS and a few other white universities in professional disciplines like engineering because the so-called black universities didn't offer these subjects. Uh, most white students um, ignored, quote, politics, and they happily enjoyed their privileged position at the white universities. A small minority, labelled the white left, used their access to good education and resources to find ways to challenge apartheid. And in my case, I aligned myself with the white left. So um, SAVS was a student organization supported almost exclusively by the white left that focused on supporting those who were disadvantaged by apartheid. 
and this was mostly women and children struggling to survive in the underdeveloped and desperately poor rural areas of South Africa, Lesotho and Swaziland. Um, SAV's members spent university holidays working with communities in rural areas, building classrooms and clinics and setting up vegetable gardens. In my case, I became deeply interested in something called appropriate technology. And I took the lead in SAVS in uh, developing low-tech water-powered pumps and methane digesters, which we um, installed in rural villages. Um, being part of SAVS was extremely important in my development as a thinking, caring human being. Apartheid shielded most white South Africans from ever seeing how black South Africans lived or struggled to live. Between 1972 and 1979, I spent long periods of time living and working in communities that were the flip side of the coin, that was the affluent and privileged world that I'd been born into. You always hear these stories, but like, it's just so crazy to hear you talk about it as obviously you were like in it and it was real to you. This is wild. Um, Okay, so what exactly happened in terms of you leaving South Africa after your PhD? Uh, When I completed my PhD in uh, 1979, I was no longer a full-time student and it meant I was no longer able to avoid being called up into the South African army, which was a white army. Um, After basic training, all medically fit white men had to serve for several months each year. At that time, the South African army was quelling protests in black townships, often shooting protesters, and fighting a guerrilla war against the ANC and PNC on South Africa's borders and in in neighboring countries. In my case, I'd done my basic training straight after school, but I was still liable to to these annual call-ups. I therefore um, had to decide whether to go into the army every year until I was 40 or to become a conscientious objector and to go to prison because if you refused to go to the army you were breaking the law and you had to and you were imprisoned or the other option was to leave South Africa it wasn't an easy choice but I chose to leave and in December 1979 I went into voluntary exile in the UK my plan then was, was to return to Africa as soon as possible to work on appropriate technology projects. Um, recently liberated Mozambique, which was um, liberated from Portuguese colonialism in 1975, um, was my plan A. As it turned out, this plan didn't happen uh, for, a ver- for a big variety of reasons, and I stayed on in the UK. For 10 years this is heavy like i you know i knew about conscription and i like knew that was super hectic but it's just like it's so wild to hear how intricate the system worked like the system worked overtime. that is outrageous um okay so you didn't go to mozambique and i'm sure we're going to find out and in like another episode why that didn't happen um but okay cool fast forward you're now in the uk and sort of like what was what were your links back to sort of yeah the stuff that was happening in South Africa under this awful regime. 
although I physically left South Africa, the truth is I never left South Africa in terms of where my head was. So while I lived in the UK, I linked up with groups of exiled South Africans. There were many, and uh, many of them were very active in anti-apartheid activities. Uh, for a year or two, I kept a low profile, and um, I read a lot to grow my understanding of the reality of the South African situation. Keep in mind that all radical anti-apartheid literature was banned in South Africa. So growing up and even being a student and doing my PhD, I didn't get to read much about the people were writing, doing an analysis of South Africa. So I used my first few years in the UK to do that. I then decided to put myself and the skills that I had at the service of those in the ANC who were working in the shadows in the fight against the apartheid regime. Bear in mind that South Africa's government had a huge intelligence machine working closely with their Western allies in the UK, Europe and the US, and, and were, were everywhere trying to monitor and counter the work of the anti-apartheid groups outside of South Africa. In many cases, they resorted to murder, killing people working in other countries. So joining a group working underground with the ANC was not a decision that many white South Africans could take easily. Um, and some who made the, the, the same choice as me to link up with the underground ANC uh, landed up in prison or dead. So I'm thinking of Jeanette Squirn, Barbara Hogan, and many others who um, were, were uh, victims of the, um, the apartheid regime. So it turned out that um, during uh, the day, I did my day jobs at UMIST Imperial College and GC, which I spoke about in the first episode. But I was recruited to work after hours on various projects in support of the ANC's underground. I won't discuss all of this now. There's a long story around some of that work. But I will focus on a project, the project that brought me back to Joburg in and to Wits in 1989. Okay, Fursi, this is very cool. You had a whole double life doing like hardcore engineering and PhD things and then at night doing like big socioeconomic revolutions. That is insane and I love it. Um, okay, yeah, tell me a little bit more or tell us a little bit more about sort of the work you were doing. So um, just to sort of go back, um, in uh, 1986, I teamed up in London with someone called Tim Jenkins. And Tim is one of the most amazing people I've ever met. He's about four years older than me. In 1978, he was sentenced to 12 years in maximum security prison in Pretoria for um, setting off pamphlet bombs that were used to distribute um, leaflets produced by the banned Communist Party and the ANC. Uh, he spent a year in prison, a year of his 12 years in prison, and then he staged an extremely brilliant and brave escape from Pretoria Central Prison. I think he's one of the only people that ever escaped from Pretoria Prison. He took two other political prisoners with him. 
Years later, he wrote a book called Escape from Pretoria, which is about this. And I recommend people read his book. A movie about Tim's escape has been made, starring Daniel Radcliffe, Harry Potter, as Tim. Who would have thought that when I met him in the 1980s in London? When I met him, he was working on developing a computer-based secure communication system for the ANC. In any underground struggle, the biggest challenge is um, communication, and it's often the weakest link. Throughout the history of warfare, breakdowns linked to sending and receiving messages has often resulted in one side learning the secrets of the other side and capturing their agents. Uh, the struggle against apartheid from the 1960s onwards was severely hampered when key people were arrested and or killed due to a lack of secure communication. There was a huge mismatch between the highly sophisticated intelligence machinery of the, the apartheid state, supported by the international friends, and the South African liberation movements communicating by smuggling letters across borders, sewed into people's garments, or using simple manual encryption and invisible ink and dead letter boxes. So uh, that was the big challenge, communication. And then enter the remarkable Tim Jenkins with a homegrown encryption system using software written in BASIC on a personal computer. He used acoustically coupled modems and portable tape recorders. He would literally record things on a cassette tape and go to a public call box and play it back through the the receiver, the um, uh, telephone receiver, and someone would pick it up in South Africa on their recorder and then using his software decrypt the message he had sent. This was before um, the internet, so that's how we, our communication worked. And Tim did this working single-handedly from his rented flat in Islington in London. Um, and Tim didn't have any technical background. He had um, studied humanities subjects in Cape Town, yeah, like too. you. <laughs> and he had just taught himself all this, but he had put together an uncrackable system. It used what were called one-time pads, which is uncrackable even today with the most sophisticated technology. And it made possible rapid communication between the ANC headquarters in Lusaka and those working underground in South Africa via Tim's node in London. So my project that I was given was to bring my advanced software and engineering skills into Tim's work and help him develop his system further. Remember this was the 1980s, long before the internet. Uh, we managed to use some early bulletin board systems to improve the speed and security of the communication systems. We didn't have to use the acoustic modems. And it worked really well. The problem, however, was that Tim needed someone with good computer skills that he could trust on the South African end of the communication link. And because I'd kept a, a pretty low profile, um, 
seemed that the obvious choice was for me to go back to South Africa. So uh, very few people um, knew about this, including people I knew in the ANC, and they didn't know about the work that I'd been doing with Tim. Um, eventually, two very senior leaders in the command of Umkonto Wesiswe, which is the ANC's armed wing, and that was uh, Ronnie Kastrels and Joe Slova, made the decision to send me back to South Africa. And my cover was to get a job at Wits University in my old department of electrical engineering. Uh, and why that was a great place to be, it would give me excellent resources that I needed to support Tim's operation. This sounds like a movie. Like, I can already see it playing out in my head. This is so wild. The like, question is, who will play me? Right? <laughs> you should get first choice on that. Oh, this is such a good story. Okay, cool. Tell me more. So, it was with uh, this mission in mind that I returned in July uh, 1989 to South Africa to take up my post as a senior lecturer in electrical engineering at WITS. And one of the highlights of the next few months came soon after I got back, well, a few months after I got back, when I secretly received, via the secure communication link between Tim and I, the text of one of the most important um, ANC documents of that time. It was their 1990 annual um, January the 8th statement and um, it was the first public statement from the ANC about the terms and conditions for the previously secret negotiations that were then underway between the ANC and, and, and the de Klerk uh, government. So I um, received it working in my flat in Hilbra. I printed the, the text out on my um, Epson dot matrix home printer. I put it in a brown envelope and I deposited it in a pigeonhole on Witt's campus. I, I never knew who went and collected it, but three days later it had been laid out and turned into tens of thousands of printed leaflets that were then distributed in townships and workplaces all over South Africa. Keep in mind that this, at this time the ANC was still banned and even possessing one of these thousands of leaflets would land a person in police detention or prison. Soon after this um, statement was released and I played a part in bringing it into South Africa on the 2nd of Feb in 1990, F.W. de Klerk unbanned the ANC and all the other banned organizations, including the Communist Party. The prohibition of the African National Congress, the Pan-Africanist Congress, the South African Communist Party is being rescinded. And on February 11, 1990, Nelson Mandela was released from prison. In this connection, the government has taken a firm decision to release Mr. Mandela unconditionally. But what was uh, decided by the High Command of Umkonto Wesiswe was that all those like me working underground should remain underground. So we, we didn't run out and party and say, oh, oh, I was part of the ANC and now I can tell you all about it. 
we um, were instructed to carry on working underground. And it wasn't really clear until uh, the 27th of April 1994, when the new constitution came in, that the negotiation would finally end apartheid. Right up to that point, there was still thought that the, that the process would be stopped and that the people would be arrested and the ANC would be rebanned. As I had done for most of my time in Britain, I lived a double life when I returned to South Africa. By day I did uh, serious work as a senior academic at WIS, and at night I worked with Tim via our communication link on various secret tasks. Uh, what um, Tim and I decided is that I wouldn't be apolitical, but I would reconnect with my pre-exile life as an active participant in the above-ground pro-ANC, anti-apartheid, white left. When they unbanned the ANC, I joined an ANC working group. So although I was a member of the ANC underground, I then publicly joined a working group called MEG, the Mineral and Energy Group, and another group of activists that were working on a proposal for science policy in the new democratic South Africa. Um, so when I uh, described my life under apartheid, I spoke about the incredible e um, inequality around supply of electricity. When I returned to South Africa in 1989, what had happened was that Eskom was in the process of launching a massive electrification program uh, they did that even before apartheid had ended. Between 1990 and 2000, the overall electrification rate in South Africa had grown from 35% to 71% in 2000. This meant that more than 2.5 million homes were connected to the national grid. Um, at its peak, this mass electrification program was connecting more than a thousand homes a day to the national grid. My day job at WITS began to focus on ways to use software to support mass electrification. We'll talk more about this in, in the next episode. Whew. I mean, you've always been one of my most favorite people, but now learning that you were a revolutionary badass just makes you <laughs> so much cooler and I'm just so happy to know you. Um, I also think it's just incredible that so much of your life has been about like finding the intersection between like technology and humans and like how to make technology accessible and helpful to humans. And I think that's definitely like the road in which we should be taking when it comes to creating technology uh, is how to make it helpful for, for the humans that use it. Um, God damn, this is really cool. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by me, Barry Dwalaski, and featured Karen Gammy. It was edited by Evan Wigdorowitz. Music and sound was by Callum Cool, and Joshua Clark mixed the episode.